מאזינים לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Balaban in Highland Park, New Jersey, at the Highland Park Center of the Kodesh Lashem. And joining me now, this beautiful Parsha, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salman Shekhar, Long Island, and Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky of Anche Chesed. This week, Anche Chesed, not Anche Chesed. It's great to see you guys. We have an amazing double Parsha, two portions of the Kodesh Lashem. This week, Bahar and Bechukotai. Let's get right into it. Bahar, what is going on here? I need some Torah here. I need some Torah. Vayedaber Hashem HaMosheh, Bahar, Sinai, Lemor. And then God is speaking at Mount Sinai. And all of a sudden, we get six years. You can plant the seventh year. It's Shemitah. What is going on? Or how does Rashi say this? Rabbi Barry Chesler. So Rashi's famous question is... What is it with Shemitah, the sabbatical year, that it has to be mentioned in connection with Mount Sinai? And he said, was it the whole Torah given at Mount Sinai? But just as the Shemitah here is given with all of its details, Rashi gets in a plug for Torah Shabbat, all the Torah was given with all its details at Mount Sinai. And for our purposes, as I mentioned before we were recording, I heard um, Debbie Wiseman, a famous Jewish educator in Jerusalem, tell the following story. When she was new to Israel, she was watching Kojak, which dates everyone who remembers it, (laughs) with Telly Savalas. And Telly Savalas says, what does this have to do with the price of tea in China? And the Hebrew subtitles are, Ma'inyan Shemitah Esohar Sinai. And... In the modern Hebrew idiom, that becomes an equivalent saying. So you could go through life in Israel not knowing any Rashi, but knowing how to say what does this have to do with the price of tea in China in biblical or in rabbinic Hebrew. But what I want to point out here, I think, that is a value, is that we have these idioms in both languages that travel far beyond their original meaning. Debbie Wiseman recounted that she went to find out what what was the story behind the tea in China and that tea in China was very cheap. It was being sold very dearly in Britain and people would go in to buy tea and get angry at the merchant for selling tea at such an exorbitant price. We've heard how Rashi connects the details of our Parsha, the sabbatical year, the first several verses, with the entire revelation at Mount Sinai. And... It gives us pause for thought because three times in the Parsha, we're connected back with Mount Sinai. And there is this recurrent trope where the Torah has to connect things to Mount Sinai, even though it's apparent as we read week by week, lots of things were happening at Mount, after Mount Sinai. And there were, as we mentioned a week or two ago, there were even things that they didn't know what to do after the revelation at Mount Sinai. You know, I, first of all, I, I love the, the little... You know, homespun story about Hebrew idioms, and it's one of the things that, as a as an American Jew, uh, even one who's you know pretty 
reasonably literate in in you know uh, the rabbis and the Bible, um, we're always just going to like this. There's always going to be a, a lift to have to turn our thinking into Hebrew. Um, and Israelis, even like as you said, even if they may, may know no no Rashi, no Midrash, there are certain things that just trip off the tongue. Just like you know, there are certain Shakespeare things that trip off our tongues, or or you know, British or, or American literature things that just trip off our tongue because of the ambient atmosphere. But in addition, I want to. We, we were talking also before we started recording about how Leviticus, which um, is is not a book with with a great many narratives in it. It's a book mostly of of rules and specific um, specific behaviors and customs. Uh, but this, there is often a story implicit, or there is often a contextual. Uh, that, that goes along with this. So we are reminded here at the end of the book of Leviticus that they haven't left Sinai. They haven't left. They are still at the mountain. And so there has been an extensive period of building this tabernacle, of dedicating this tabernacle, of learning this new religion. And they are about to, what's the first thing that's going to happen in Bamidbar? They're going to learn how to dismantle and reassemble the tabernacle as they go. So they're getting ready in Bamidbar to do a lot more traveling but there's just this implicit, like we know that they have been stationary for you know a good a good long time, listening and learning. And so and so this there's a story behind this the rules of the shemitah rules and the the sabbatical year and the jubilee year. Uh, and and you know often when reading this parsha, I'm thinking like what what does the average Joe Israelite, you know Hebrew having emerged from slavery. Okay, so they've, they've had a few, you know, setbacks, the golden calf, a couple other things, food, mana, et cetera. And now they're sitting at the mountain and, and they're like looking at their watch, you know, saying like, when are we gonna, when are we gonna get into the land? And, and out comes, you know, this legislation. It's, I, I wanna say it's complicated legislation. I mean, it's complicated for, for people like us to read it. Um, you know, we're we're far removed from an agrarian society, agrarian culture. I suppose for people who who understood what it meant to plant and grow crops, that uh, they were just that much more connected to the rhythms. But this is this is not easy stuff. And and it's like you know, Maya Shmita, what are you telling us here? I always feel reading that Rashi, it's it's there's something more than just um, you know the 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 sense that. This this is the legislation here. It's it's we are we don't know what you're talking about. And I find you know this is for, for me a homiletical springboard to you know what's it what's the relevance of of things that what's the relevance of Shabbat? What's the relevance of Kashru? What's the relevance of Brit Milah? What's the relevance of of the holidays? You know, Mayna Shemitah is is for me the the larger categorical question of. You know, how do you explain the whole the whole system to people? Well, it's complicated. Go ahead. It's important to remember here that there is a call for the land to rest, just like the people have to rest. There's almost a personification of the land that we treat the land as we treat human beings. And listening to you describe this, Elliot, I was struck by the idea that now that our ancestors are out of Egypt and they're ready to start farming. Uh, that's the story that we tell. They, the, one of the first things they have to be told is that you're not going to farm forever, that you have to rest also, that part of 
the cycle of life is rest. It's not something that's given to you by other human beings. It's given to you by God. It is part of how we see, how we find our place in the universe is by resting as well as working. So I think, I think you're, you are onto something. I think that's the, the central theme here, the, the, the theme of ownership, tenancy, residency, what, what constitutes habitation in land? Jeremy, you want to jump in? There's, I think this is absolutely correct. And I think there's multiple ways in which this is manifest. But one of them is, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate very much in, in our religion that the combination of a respect for private property, prohibitions against stealing, the requirement to respect other people's property rights, because I think that's part of, of ethical treatment of others, and the uh, commitment that you do not get to use your property for absolute maximum profit, no matter what, nobody can stop you, it's yours. We have this way of talking in the United States that, um, that, that you know, who are you to tell me what to do with my property? Um, whatever the market will allow. If I choose to work extra hard, I should be able to, to work as hard as I want, or I should be able to make as much money as I want. One of the ways in which the Torah include, uh, it, it teaches a social ethic is to say, it's your field, but not seven straight years. You have to stop. It's your field. You can't reap to the edges though. The edges belong to some of the poor. Uh, and, and, to me, this is a, a profound, like just as Shabbat says, for six days you work hard, you improve, you grow, you achieve. One day you have to rest to, to keep the balance. This is saying, I think, something profound and similar that you should work, you should achieve, you are powerful, you will succeed, but only in the context of an ethic that is larger that includes stopping. So let's, let's, let's go into one of the specific uh, rules here. And this has to do with the, the Jubilee. After seven sets of seven years, you're in year 49, and then year 50 is the Yovel. So uh, that, that really constitutes two years of, of sabbatical, okay? You know, uh, many of us will enjoy at some point in our careers a quote-unquote sabbatical. It's not a year off, right? When's your sabbatical, Jerry? Two. No, two. I... <laughs> That's two. I get the 49th and the 50th. No, I, I will have a sabbatical this year, although it's already been delayed for another reason than for COVID. And then my my dear colleague Yael Hammerman and our and her husband, our, our other colleague Josh Rabin, are expecting another baby, so she's going to have a maternity leave. So I'm getting delayed a little bit again, but around February I should get a sabbatical. Well, I, I I used the the summer as a sabbatical. I had it over six years or two months. You know that was pretty good. <laughs> One month, no, actually six months. Anyway. Um, the point is, yes, yeah, so sabbatical, the, the, the idea of sabbatical is built in here, but the complication is, so year 48 comes and you're worried. You're, you're, you're Joe Hebrew Israelite. You're planting your thing. You, you're, you reap, you know, bountiful harvest. Year 48, you're, you're looking at yourself and you, you come home to your little shack and you say, I don't know what we're going to do next year. Year 49 is coming. It's Shemitah. And then Yo, Yovel is coming. That's the Jubilee coming. I don't know, what are we going to do, honey? What are we going to do? <laughs> so the Torah says, the Torah says, it, it, it says it in a much more formal way, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? We haven't planted anything. We haven't harvested anything. And so the Torah says, I'm going to command my blessing to you. 
on the sixth year, it's going to have great harvest. So this is where I kind of stop. If I had a glass of wine, I'd say, okay, we're going for it here. I mean, you seriously, we're going to rely on a miracle for three years. What's what, you know, how do you read this? Jeremy, you want to give it a show? Or Barry, you want to go ahead. All right. So there are two things that are important here. The first, I think, is that in the sabbatical year, you're essentially told you have to live like a poor person. You're dependent on other people or on the land to provide for you. You're not going to provide for yourself. And I think this is an important statement about how we see ourselves in the world, that we cannot lord it over other people, act like the Lord. We have to remember what our place is. The other thing is, though, again, the way you describe it, I think this is a great Zionist dream. The great challenge of Zionism was that everything had to be translated into Jews taking ownership of their lives. So in the Galut, we have the Shabbat Goy, the Goy who would do the things that Jews were forbidden to do on Shabbat and Yom Tov. In Israel, the Jews have to do those things. Now, we still have non-Jews who do some of those things, but... Part of the Zionist enterprise was figuring out what we were going to allow Jews to do because a modern society requires things to happen. Yeah. And I think that the element of God providing is this element of bitachon, that no matter where we are, but especially in the land of Israel, we have to have this trust that things will work out. Jeremy. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, the laws are rules, and the laws are behaviors, and the laws are parables, and this is a parable of bitachon, of trust in God, and it is a parable of, of rest and, and, you know, taking on this voluntary, somewhat poverty, um, and it is incredibly difficult to envision how these things could actually happen, um, because, you know, how many, how many people could possibly have lived in, in, on the land of biblical Israel? Not many. Um, you know, we have sometimes, Barry has sometimes referred about the difference between the, the, comp, the competitive um, shepherding cultures and the agricultural farming cultures and conceivably maybe you know that's maybe this is Shemitah is is a tilt towards the the shepherding cultures because you know you you uh um because you, you can't have the the produce of the land but it's and, and then the rabbis come along and and are and ruled that you can't eat him the uh the stuff that just grows of itself. So it's impossible to see, I find it impossible to see what an, an ancient society actually did. Certainly a modern society, it just can't, it can't work in this way. And as you pointed out there, we have the, uh, the Zionist challenges. So, you know, you have uh, Ruf Cook, who he didn't innovate this, but he certainly upheld it. And and in the last Shemitah year, Ravadi Yosef also affirmed, yes, you can sell the land to non-Jews, technically, like you sell your chametz, and the non-Jews can, can work the land and they can sell you the produce or they can also, there's a, there's a warehouse of the Beit Din, this, the, the Otsar of the Beit Din, that they can turn it over to some Jewish communal institution who can then sell it. Um, and that strikes some people as kind of ugly uh, because that doesn't seem very Zionistic to sell, sell the land. Uh, but the other alternative is just to import all the food, which also doesn't sound very Zionistic. Which is what they do anyway. No, I, I want to uh, just react to it only in the sense that, that you know, I, I, I read this text and think, well, would you, if, if 
if you were in a difficult medical situation and 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 you know your person of interest said to you, no, it's okay, you know, God is going to command his blessing upon you, you'd say, thank you. Uh, but I, I think I'd also like to try out, you know, the the you know the advances of medicine. In other words, <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we do rely on God's blessing, um, but we also rely on ourselves. And I and I I see in here I, 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 my reading of this is like, the, this is a moment of, ten, anytime there's a question, anytime the Torah has a question, like, for example, you know, the, the children of the Agada, they're all in the Torah, they're asking because there's a source of conflict and a source of tension. And the source of conflict and tension here is very real. It's like, what, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so what are we going to do? Motive has two answers. Yeah, Hashem will provide, or you know what? I'm going to work very, very hard to make sure that the that this the, this harvest in the sixth year is bountiful, and that we'll we'll plan appropriately. We'll create our 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 chavurot or our kibbutz or whatever our social needs need, require. We'll store our food together. We'll share our food together, and that way we'll be able to endure what we hope will be a bountiful bountiful harvest. And of course, you know, if the bountiful harvest doesn't come on the sixth year, we're all we're all in it together. You know. So Jeremy says something important about it's hard to have imagine how this actually worked. I once tried to write a paper on it, and even for modern scholars, although the book I was looking at was from the 50s, it, it is very difficult to figure out how this might have worked. So there is a piece of the Yovel, though, that I think we can all understand, and that is that the people had to go back to their ancestral land, that no matter how alienated you were from the land, Every 50 years, you went back. And the slave who had had his ear pierced um, to, as a sign of perpetual servitude, went free as well. Yes. So the sabbatical year, we're looking forward. We go, and the first year is a new year. It's not really going back. But the Jubilee year is a way of having a, a grand cycle. Things are going to go, there's a restoration. We're going to go back to the way things were because we should never be so far of where we began that we think that we're done with it. So it's 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 a grand reset. Grand it reset. totally reboots and resets the economy, which of course, you know, in, in our context with such a complicated economy, supply chains, and, you know, I, I, I go to the grocery store and you can buy, I don't know, mangoes from Honduras, you know, now. I mean, I, don't, I didn't grow up with mangoes. You didn't grow up with kiwi, you know. Well, you grew up in Canada. I know. <laughs> we were Was Canada a country back then? Oranges. We had oranges, but it's all imported. No, of course. You know, but that's the miracle of, of, a, of, a, of a global economy. Of course, it has its its downside. Um, but and so maybe this is this is maybe not so far fetched. There's there is an economic theme here, the economic story and, and this poverty. Is, this is really rich because uh, as as Barry said, I think. This is a parable of the fresh start. You never, you never are so lost that you can't come home. You can always resume, and it's predicated, you know, also in ways which are, you know, kind of fantastical and and impractical. But is predicated on the idea that everybody, you know, with with the chalukah that 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 Moses and Joshua did of the land, everybody got a fair shake, right? And and the population hasn't grown from you know a few thousand to to many millions because 
wouldn't really work now, but um, but the idea is that everybody had at one point an equitable share, and everybody is going to get it back and restart. Um, and everybody is tied to the land. This is one of the ways in which the Torah expresses the deep purchase uh, in in the in the metaphorical sense, the purchase of the land on the on the Jewish psyche. Um, so you're going to get to you're going to get to start all over again, and you're going to get a fresh a fresh opportunity, which is really quite stirring and beautiful. Right, except for the fact that that built into that system is is tremendous tension because who's going to want to sell land in the in the year? Who's going to want to lend money uh, if if it's going to if there's going to be an amnesty? I mean, and the, and the tradition deals with these questions well, uh, because yeah, they're inevitable exactly. to 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 a complicated economy. But that's that's I mean, this is this is why this is a you know now now looking ahead to Deuteronomy, um, this is why this is a religious system. And it is not, it is a civil system, but it's also a religious one. Because in Deuteronomy, when those questions come up, and and it's pen you okay, lest you become a rotten scumbag <laughs> and say, and you harden your heart and you say, don't you know, don't harden your heart. Close your hand. Open your hand. And that is a religious message, right? Be an open-hearted person, even when it's not going to profit you. So this that's, is... That's chashuv. Absolutely. And and therein lies, I think, the deep economic tension. You know, when when you you have to open your heart, open your hands, and, and you say, look, you know, I, I've worked for what I've worked for. Uh, and and there is, so so this actually leads into into a, a whole section of Parshat Bahar, You know the 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 notion that your brother will be dependent on you, or that there will be people in your midst who will need your your aid. So maybe the question is, what kind of society does the Torah envision, and what is your place in that society? What what's the What's the social contract here, Barry? What do you the the social contract? I think as we look at Vayikra as a whole, is to establish a holy community, but it's not a holy community that's predicated on withdrawing into ourselves. It's one that's forcing us to turn out. That holiness is not always something that's neat and um, pleasant, shall we say? But there's can be a coarseness to it and a problematic structure that goes with it that we have to attend to. In real life, people become impoverished and the community has to take care of them. When a person can no longer take care of him or herself, we don't say goodbye, God bless. We say we have to do something for you. And I think the call, as you said, the tension is that we want to be holy, we want to live in God's image, we have to recognize that this is all God's world, and we have to make it better. This is this is really um, so illuminating to the general social ethic of Judaism. Okay, it, it is not, in the end, uh, an individualistic one. It is, in the end, a communitarian one. And I think that on a literary level, this passage here in, in, in Leviticus uh, 25 uh, establishes that by its use of the word achicha, repeatedly 
it describes the poor person as your brother, okay? So addressing the Israelite, it's saying, as Barry said, you know, real life, there's economic winners and losers, people people get in trouble. Um, and so the first thing that happens is, Achicha, your brother, this is your brother who is, is struggling. So the first thing you're gonna do is you're going to give him an interest-free loan. Okay, that's your first step. And that should take care of things. Um, and it's gonna cost you money to do that because it does. This is this is money you can't invest. This is money that you you're risking losing. But you have to because this is your brother. Uh, you know, we, we would we would say kinsperson, right, or brother or sister, whatever. And and then that might not work. But you have to strengthen that person because even the person gets a little worse and they're in a little bit worse straight and the, and the, and the interest free loan didn't do it. Then they're really struggling. Well, you have to you have to uh, strengthen that person even further and take them on as as a uh, as a like a Hebrew slave. Hebrew slave. This, this word Eved Ivri sounds very bad, and 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 you know it is. Um, but the Eved Ivri, the Hebrew servant, is a benevolence. It's not an exploitative institution because it means that rich people, whether you want to or not, you simply have to give a job to to the people who are struggling in your communities. And yes, rich person, it's going to cost you some money, but it doesn't matter because this is what it means to be in a covenantal community. So I want to go back to what, what Barry said just before. In the covenantal community, and, and it's structured around, I think, a, a, an ideal. It's not a utopian ideal. I think that, that, that what I'm struggling with here or, or trying to figure out is that, you know, Kedushah is a world built on categories, order. It's, you know, what's permitted, what's forbidden, and, and all the things that go, I mean, the, you know, I spent so much time in the reading of Vayikra on this round thinking about, you know, the, the role of the priests and, and how the, the sanctuary is divided into the zones. And, you know, those, that, that theme is really appealing. And then, of course, you know, the messiness of life breaks, breaks into all of this. And you want to construct a utopian society, but in a utopian society, there's still going to be poverty. There's, in other words, it's not a utopian society. It's a real society in which people are trying to live towards an ideal. And in the ideal, yeah, you're going to have, you know, people who are poor. You're going to have people who are not able to work. You're going to have people who, you know, for one reason or another are not, are not capable, you know, and, and are capable at some skills and not other skills. And people who, you know, have horrible things happen to them as life inevitably you know, deals us, and because of loss or because of injury or because of something, they're set back. Look, look at what we're what we're in. I mean, and think about the messiness of life. You know, and 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 all of this. You know, we've had just this kind of you know crisis week in the Jewish world with the the Lagbomer festivities on Mount Meron and forty five Jews. You know, trampled to death. I mean, that's you know horrendous, horrific kind of scene where where just the awfulness and, and messiness of life imposes itself on, on joy. So what I wanted to say is that Vayikra in a certain sense prefigures the constitution because it wants to make a more perfect union. We're not going to get there to the perfect union, but we can make things better. And our charge, it seems to me, is Jews and we could give a shout out to the inscription on the Liberty Liberty Bell, which will proclaim uh, freedom throughout the land to all the inhabitants thereof, is that we want to work to create a community where we can draw God's presence into the world. We want to create a world where God would want to dwell. 
And if we could do that, then God will dwell amongst us with all of our imperfections. I think that that's, you know, the theme that the, part, the, the book of Ayikra will end with. Of course, it's, it's the blessings and curses. It's, it's the idea that there are consequences of the covenant. But in the second of our two parshas, which we only have a couple of minutes for, but that's, you know, we'll only deal with what will happen if you do. I'll make, I'll make the natural order work properly. Uh, you'll have peace in the land. There is a contiguity to the law, to uh, the order, to make you know, trying to create this perfect union and and peace. How do you read it, Jeremy? How do you? Yeah, well, that's that's it. I mean, um, it, it is not you know the, the back in Bihar, You know, we we we. We know we we know we leave Avdut to Pharaoh, you know, Avadim But the point of leaving Pharaoh's servitude is not to not be servants to anybody, it's to be servants to God. Because Bahar will close off Israel Avadim Avadaihim. Okay. You you used to be an Evid to Pharaoh, now you are my Avadim. And it doesn't mean that that you know I'm now going to mistreat you in the same way. It means that you have a real freedom because you are integrated into the way things ought to be. You are integrated into an ethical and sacred community. And by the way, if you live in accordance with that, you will you will live in a good world. I thought Barry's phrase was quite eloquent. You know, if you make the world one that God would want to live in, then you go lo and behold, you discover that the divine is present. And and you know, we're not going to talk about the all the terrible stuff that is described. That the Torah kind of like goes off the chain when it describes what will happen if you if you violate uh, the covenant and it'll be disgraceful and terrible and terrifying. Uh, we're, we're fortunately not going to go into that today, but, you know, it bears thinking about because not not that in my religious life, I think that that an angry and, and vengeful God is going to is going to punish us for failing to keep the mitzvot. But it is possible that you, unlike, you know, living in the good world of social of social ethics and care and sanctity, you live in a bad world of exploitation and, and desecration. And then you're going to have to live in a world of, of terrible suffering, of terrible fear, where the sound of a driven leaf makes you run away. And you're, you know, you're starving because, because you have screwed this world up massively. So I hope that um, the, the Tochechat is, is not like primarily about, ooh, look how terrible God is, but at least some reckoning with how badly one can screw up what ought to be an otherwise good world. Barry, have any closing thoughts on the book of Leviticus, Vayikra, or any, any, anything, anything? Yeah, I'm struck by what you said a number of times, Elliot, about how there's a story behind the law. Yeah. And the law presents itself as static. It doesn't seem to move, and the story has movement. And one of the things that strikes me is that life is all about movement, that Sometimes things are static, but most of the time we're either going to or leaving from a place. And it's a call to remind us that even though there are moments of stasis, Shabbat in the sense, the sabbatical year, the Jubilee year, that we need to concentrate as much on our movement during the week, during the six years, during the the 49 years, in order to infuse our lives with meaning. 
Jeremy, what are, what are parting shots on Leviticus, Vayikra? Anything that, that stays with you on this round? Anything well, about I, anything? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that what's very vivid to me is that the title of Torah HaKohanim is a distortion, right? There's a lot of stuff that is about um, the priestly behaviors, but ultimately it is about uh, the holy community in the ways that we just said of, of social care and and loving your neighbor, loving your neighbors yourself, don't hate your brother, but take care of your brother. What do you think? I think I'm still back at suet and fat. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get that picture out of my head. You know, the, the Adam no, the, the, cut up into pieces. It represents, I don't know. So the pretty- Torah Toanim, I think, Jeremy, is not about priests as a class of people, but it's about a Mamlachet Toanim. It's that, that we are all Koanim, and that's what is supposed to grab us. I, think, that. I think I think that this, these ideas are really very profound. I think this book is it's situated at the center of the Torah for a reason. It, it, it elicits from us all of these, these different ideas. It does bring us closer to, to, this, to, to the central you know, principles of, of, of the Torah, you know, Kedoshim to you. I think um, it, it also uncovers for us that uh, when, you look, when you look under the verse, there's, there's a story there. I love that, that idea that, that each, one of these, each one of these situations, these laws, reflects a human drama and people and and we're still living in that and that gives us tremendous joy that's that's why this what we do is so so joyful to to the three of us because i think we're we're trying to uncover the great human drama here and and just what it means to be a human being it's what it means to to live uh with these rules with the law with god with the people and how joyful it is how how often messy it is how difficult it is but it's it's so rewarding so beautiful and with that we got to thank our listeners our viewers including many many people new people new viewers from all over the world including canada and israel and uh coming up and lots and lots of good things we hope everyone has a wonderful beautiful shabbat we'll see you next week Another edition of Parshita. Chazak, chazak, when it